I don't mean a little fluff of fur here and there. I mean she sheds. Akiva is a Bernese mountain dog who sheds enough fur every week to make a carpet to cover this entire floor. We try to keep up with the, with the fur, brushing her, vacuuming the floor, sometimes twice a day, sometimes more often. But just as I finish one room, I can see out of the corner of my eye the fur floating and settling down once again. Now, Jean and I are embarrassingly loony about how much we love this dog. And I'm embarrassingly loony about how much I obsess about the dog fur. And sometimes, I'll just look over at her shedding away And I think maybe I should just give up on the floor and start vacuuming her. (laughs) And so, as you can imagine, I was rather pleased to see an essay recently by spiritual director and joyfulness consultant Amanda Eichmann, and she tells this story about her friend. She says, Betty had some sort of compulsion that made it impossible for her to leave the house in the morning without first dusting or vacuuming every single item in it. This included Reuben. He was a slim, black little fellow whose elegance of gait and demeanor did not betray his humble origins. As a kitten, he had been rescued from the dumpster by Jay, who brought him home in his pocket. Reuben knew that he had been rescued from a dumpster, and he knew that the world outside Betty and Jay's house was a harsh reality where there would be bad smells, hunger, other cats, noises even louder than the whine of a vacuum cleaner. And so every morning, with a martyred expression on his furry face, not unlike that of St. Sebastian in Guido Reni's famous painting, Reuben would lie on his back and submit to being vacuumed. (laughs) Betty used the Hoover's upholstery crevice tool, determined to get every last scrap of fur and dander. Jay would sometimes come by and say over the noise of the vacuum, Now, Betty, why do you have to vacuum that poor cat? Betty didn't know. She just kept vacuuming. She had to do it, you see, before she could feel free to leave the house. Now, after recounting this bizarre but compelling story, the author asks the question, does it sometimes feel as if your entire life is like this, an endless round of work and frantic consumption and leisure that feels suspiciously like work? Is true healing rest something you are vaguely planning to enjoy, One day, will you allow yourself a Sabbath now and then to catch up with yourself? The word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, meaning to rest, to cease. It was given its original formation within the Jewish community who followed the rhythm described in Genesis, where God labored to create the world for six days, and then on the seventh, rested. 
This appears, in fact, to be the first place where a rhythm of work explicitly included stopping. From Shabbat, we derive the foreign words sabato, samedi, and samstag, all names for Saturday, as well as the word sabbatical. I have always loved the Jewish ritual of honoring the Sabbath, Shabbat, at home, beginning at sundown on Friday and continuing until sundown on Saturday. At the onset of Shabbat, the candles come out, the table is dressed, the family is gathered, and prayers are said. The frenzied pace begins to slow down, and everything else is put aside in order to focus on that which is of utmost importance, your relationship with your family the guests at your table, and God. The practice of Shabbat is like taking a mini sabbatical every week, once a week. And I have no doubt that there are lessons for us in those teachings. Too many of us, myself most assuredly, have become like Betty the vacuumer, unable to rest, endlessly busy. I see it in myself, and I see it sometimes in this community. I hear about it from parents downstairs who talk of their children being booked from the time they wake up in the morning until they fall asleep at night. I see it with our middle school youth and younger, who, like some of us, cannot resist checking their blackberries every couple of minutes for messages. One of my favorite authors, Wayne Mueller warns us, quote, because we do not rest, we lose our way. We miss the compass points that show us where to go. We lose the nourishment that gives us succor. We need that pause if we hope to be of use to ourselves, to each other, and to the world itself. The poet Billy Collins has written a poem called I go back to the house for a book. I turn around on the gravel and go back to the house for a book, something to read at the doctor's office. And while I am inside running the finger of inquisition along a shelf, another me that did not bother to go back to the house for a book heads out on his own, rolls down the driveway and swings left toward town, a ghost in his ghost car, Another knot in the string of time, a good three minutes ahead of me. A spacing that will now continue for the rest of my life. Sometimes I think I see him, a few people in front of me on a line, or getting up from the table to leave the restaurant just before I do, slipping into his coat on the way out the door. But there is no catching him, no way to slow him down and put us back in sync. Unless one day, he decides to go back to the house for something. But I cannot imagine for the life of me what that might be. He is out there always before me, blazing my trail, invisible scout, hound that pulls me along, shade I am doomed to follow, my perfect double, only bumped an inch into the future and not nearly as well-versed as I in the love poems of Ovid. I who went back to the house that fateful winter morning and got the book. I love that image because it speaks so clearly to the feeling of somehow losing ourselves, 
the rhythm of our lives fallen out of whack. One part of us yearns back towards something left behind, and one part keeps moving on to the future, the next chore, the next task. And where, as Amanda asked earlier, is the real self? Alive in the present, but moving so quickly that instead of one ghostly double sailing out ahead of us, there may be three or six or eight. They multiply, in fact, with our distractions as we think about what is to be done next or what got left undone yesterday instead of anchoring ourselves now, here in this very moment, this breath moving through our bodies, this light touching our eyes, this room cradling us in our community. Lately, I have noticed, I'm so sorry, that I'm a bit out of whack, that there is sometimes a nagging edge of crabbiness along the margin of my days. You may have noticed that. Caught, as I often find myself, in the inch of space between the inbox and the outbox, as Robert Gruden put it in our opening words. I know from experience that when we're off kilter, we have to once again feel anchored, and that will require a pause in the busy pace, a willing, willful reclamation of ourselves from the hundreds of tasks and activities that leave us feeling so scattered. I'm grateful for the ministerial tradition of sabbatical and that this community understands the relevance of a sabbatical for effective clergy leadership. It is standard practice for clergy leaders to accrue one month of sabbatical for every year served. And on completing the American Ethical Union's three-year leadership certification course of study, our board of trustees included a provision in my contract awarding me six months of sabbatical retroactively for the years I had been fulfilling the role of a leader despite the lack of a credential. I am well aware of how fortunate I am to be embarking on three months of that sabbatical beginning on Tuesday. And what a gift this promises to be. As soon as the dates were set, I started dreaming about what a sabbatical might look like and began charting my activities. <laughs> a friend of mine looked it over and said that it read more like a bucket list of all the things I want to do before I die, and those plans were to cover just the first week. And so I began to narrow my options. I talked to a fair number of more experienced leaders and ministers who have taken sabbaticals for ideas and pointers. It turns out that a number of them go off on silent retreats at some point, something which, try as I might to like that idea, <laughs> just leaves me a little itchy. Others travel to faraway lands and exotic places, one made a quilt, another made a CD, and at least one began meeting with a shamanic healer. I kept measuring my ideas with those of my colleagues, feeling that I need to do something equally impressive. But instead, 
I find myself wanting to stay closer to home, to allow the process to unfold, more like that of another local colleague who told me recently that she did nothing on her sabbatical. Nothing, I said. Nothing, she said. For the first month, I slept 12 hours a day. I just needed to be home. And she added this. Our stillness is part of our work as silence is part of music. We often miss this point, particularly in our culture, which is driven to distraction by busyness, often every waking moment filled. It turns out that the actor Alan Alda participated recently in an experiment with a series of brain scan tests. His brain was wired up and he was put into an MRI machine and shown a series of words that he was asked to pay attention to. There was a brief time between the words that were flashed onto the screen and he was instructed to focus on a mark that shows up when there's no word on the screen. He assumed this experiment would show his brain's responses to the words, words like gun, injury, pain. But in fact, the experiment was designed to show his brain's response to the brief moments when the screen was blank, except for the simple mark that make, made no demands on his brain to think, but to simply focus on that little mark. It turns that out that his brain was, of course, aroused and responsive to the words that were making demands on him. But at the same time, there was a certain area of the brain that was simultaneously responding to the blank screen, that was turned on by the blank screen. And this area of the brain is identified as the source of our creativity. It is the sabbatical area of our brain. We need the spaces between the words, the silences. We need the moments without demands, the Sabbath moments. And Alan Alda said, I guess that's why I have all kinds of creative ideas when I'm driving the car or taking a walk or when I'm in the shower, when I am not thinking of anything specifically or trying to solve some problem. I love my job. It feeds me. I am forever astonished that I can do what I am called to do in this place that I love so much because this is the life I have chosen and the life that has chosen me. But I am ready for this sabbatical <laughs> because I'm tired. Mainly due, I think, to the cumulative effect of the many changes we've been through together over the past few years and the role I have been called upon to play in helping midwife several of those transitions. The people who lead congregations, clergy leaders, do this work out of a profound love and profound commitment.
We do it regardless of our momentary personal feelings on any given Sunday or at the minute we're in the middle of the night when we're called to a hospital. I do it as Amanda does it when I am sad or depressed or hurting inside. I do it many days when I do not believe in the aspirations of the human spirit, (laughs) where it can feel pointless given what happens out in the world, and I begin to think we might just as well put aluminum cans in the garbage and shop at Walmart and hate whoever we feel like hating. (laughs) But then I walk in here, and I see all of you, and silently to myself, I once again commit to do this work, this work that I love, with all my heart and all my integrity for as long as it is doing anybody any good. I once read that among the Hopi Indians, there was a belief that at night, when we fall asleep, our spirits leave our bodies and go wandering away into the secret life of the darkness. But sometimes it turns out the spirit gets lost or too caught up in its mysterious adventures and is late in returning to the body. Now this causes all kinds of havoc and distress as a person awakens and goes out about the business of the day uncoupled from the essential self. And so the Hopi developed a practice On waking in the morning, instead of staggering out of bed and plunging into activity, as we so often do, they would sit quietly on the edge of the bed and hum a private, personal little song, so that if their spirit was still wandering in the land of dreams, it would hear the song of its daytime life and return. What a wonderful thing it would be to know a small, quiet song that would recollect us to ourselves, recollect us literally. A song that would let us feel centered in our lives, unified and serene instead of scattered out into the world like fragments of busyness disconnected from any true sense of purpose. Now, we don't have that Hopi tradition embedded in the culture of our lives to guide us. But that same notion of the song, the essential melody of who we are, is at the heart of meditation and every spiritual practice we can adopt or discover, and even in single moments in which we let ourselves become completely present whole and attentive. And what all of these practices of attention are teaching us is who we are. Not in the form of our busyness, not in the jammed up little frames of our date books, but in our deep and quiet essence. My sincerest wish would be that our lives were set up All of our lives in this room were set up so compassionately that each of you could also embark on sabbaticals from time to time as well. I know 
that I am not the only one here who feels the need for it. But I do hope that the renewal that I expect from our months apart and the opportunities you will have to experiment and try out new things in our programming and new ways to support each other to breathe and to take Sabbath moments for yourself, which I hope you will do, will spill over into all aspects of our shared leadership on my return so that in one way or another, the sabbatical will very truly be for all of us. I would be remiss if I didn't point out that for some people at West, my absence will mean more stress, more attention to ensuring that all goes well. So I hope that everyone will step forward and help where needed read your newsletter and your emails, and if there's a request for help from our pastoral care associates or Amanda, or for our community dinner in March, our spring festival or Seder in April, or whatever, answer that call. I'm grateful to Amanda and to all the staff and the volunteers who will be stepping in to keep the wheels turning in my program areas while I am out of the picture for a while. It will be hard for me not to be in touch, (laughs) and I won't be. I won't be attending platforms or meetings (laughs) or, sadly for me, our fabulous auction or our two spring celebrations. I don't know that I've ever missed them in my 30 years. I won't be receiving your emails or phone calls. I will be gone, living a different life for a time and returning in May and refreshed and renewed and ready for our next adventure. I am grateful, very grateful that you are inviting me to stop rowing so hard and to step out of the current for a while. And I look forward to all that we will become, all that we will have, we will have become when I return in this spring. I will carry you in my heart while we're apart, and I hope you'll do the same for me. And I am trusting that my inner wells of creativity and passion will be filled and that the scattered pieces of myself will be retrieved into my one whole heart.